Before we dive in, I want to recap the first teaching I did on this. I did a teaching a few weeks ago titled, Holiness is Fun. And in that teaching, I endeavored to answer two questions. The first was, what is holiness? And the second is, how was it fun? Now, to be holy means to live a life that is free from the destructive ways of the world. One way to consider holiness is to be morally pure. And as I said, morality is what I will be talking about today. Now, both God and Jesus Christ are holy. What does that mean? Well, it means that there is nothing about them that is selfish or unkind or manipulative or impure or arbitrary or in any sense evil. Instead, God and his Son are gracious, kind, loving, pure, and merciful, and there are a whole lot more as well. Holiness, when it comes to the Christian man or woman, holiness is a life that is lived in imitation of God and his Son, a life that is far from boring, restrictive, or glum. It is actually a very fulfilling life, and it is actually fun. Galatians speaks about some of the blessings of living a holy life. And they're in Galatians chapter 5. This is the fruit of the Spirit, which you might also look at as the fruit of living a holy life. Because a holy life is a life that is led by the Spirit. So look at these things that are yours as we live a life that is holy. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Now, I have never counseled anyone who came to me because they had too much joy or love in their lives. Listening or learning to live as God designed us to live is the path to holiness, and holiness leads to the fruit of the Spirit, which is fulfilling and fun. You and I we're designed to live a holy life, a life that reflects God and his son to the world. And our ability to live a holy life is found in Christ. He is the one who made us holy by his sacrifice on the cross. Now, as we get into holiness, there are two verses on holiness in the books of Thessalonians that seem to be somewhat contradictory. So I want to go over them with you and take a look at them because they contain some wonderful truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in verse 13 it says, Paul is speaking here, and he says, But we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. Now the word sanctification is just a long word that means being made holy. You were made, you were made holy by the Spirit and by your belief in the truth. This verse tells us a central part of our identity as Christians. We are now holy. God calls you and I saints. The word saint means a holy one. That is you. That is who you are. When you were born again, you were made holy by the Lord. Doesn't matter what you were before. Doesn't matter what you did or you didn't do. In Christ, you have been made holy. Being holy is not something you strive for. Being holy is something that you are. It is part of your identity in Christ. Now, having said that, there's a verse in 1 Thessalonians that looks at holiness from a different perspective. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll read in verse 1 and 2. 
It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So this verse is about what we do in our walk with God, as opposed to who we are spiritually before God. That's what we were reading about in 2 Thessalonians. Look at verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And again, that means holiness. God's will is that we be holy. But wait a second. 2 Thessalonians said we were holy. What is it talking about? It's talking about our walk, our lifestyle that can reflect the inner man, who we truly are spiritually. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Now, to be impure means to be contaminated. My daughter Sarah is a research scientist, and sometimes when she's doing an experiment, she finds that the sample she was going to work on has been contaminated with outside agents that disrupt the experiment. It is, that is what impurity is, outside contaminating agents. In this case, God is speaking of us being contaminated with the standards of this world. This verse is about how we live because of who we are. 2 Thessalonians tells us who we are. We are holy ones. 1 Thessalonians tells us how we can live because of who we are. We have already been made holy before God. All that remains is for us to learn how to live out of this new identity. That is the renewed mind. And it is by renewing our minds to God's truth that we begin to live out our identity and we begin to enjoy the fruits of holiness in our day-to-day lives. You see, we have been brought up surrounded by a worldview and a lifestyle that does not reflect our identity in Christ. It is a contaminated worldview. Walking the world's way is the opposite of walking by the Spirit. Now, how did we end up following the world's way? Well, it's very simple, and God's Word explains this to us. We were pressed into the world's mold, the world's standards, for determining and deciding on morality. And morality, by the way, is simply a way to approach and to understand what is right and what is wrong. Look at Romans 12, too. It says, do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed here means to be pressed into a mold. Don't allow yourself to be pressed into a mold. Rather than that, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have been conformed to this world more than we realize and probably more than we are comfortable admitting. So it's important for you and I to understand how the world develops morality. Now, on a certain level, all humans have a basic understanding of right and wrong. Why is this? It's because God has imprinted that into the soul of every human man or woman. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Paul is speaking, and he says, For when the Gentiles, the non-Jews who do not have the law. So the Gentiles did not have God's instructions about what was morally and proper and holy. 
But even though they didn't have God's instructions, by nature they did what the law requires. How can you do something by nature? Well, it has to be part of your nature. God has imprinted a moral awareness on all men and women. By nature they did what the law requires, and they are a law unto themselves, even though they did not have the law. This is the moral awareness that can be that God has given to every man and woman, but it can be twisted and corrupted and rationalized away. Let me give you a quick example. Most people know, well, you shouldn't lie. Don't lie. Well, unless it's your tax return. That's not really lying, is it? You see, that's how we, uh, people understand that you should speak the truth. We understand you shouldn't steal, that you shouldn't kill. You don't have to be a Christian to understand those things. That's part of our moral awareness. But whatever God has done, the devil can counterfeit and corrupt. Now, because God has placed within all humans a basic awareness of good and evil, at times you will see that the world actually agrees with things that God's word says. This is what we're talking about here in Romans 2.14. It might come to the same conclusion as we do following the Spirit. But although the world at times may s- come to the same conclusion, they arrive at it through a different and an uncertain path. We want to arrive at it through the certain path of God's word. Now, when you look in the Gospels and you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, you find that Jesus often offended people by what he said. And the reason that Jesus offended people is because because God offends people. God offends people because he claims authority over right and wrong. And thus he challenges our illusion of self-sufficiency, our illusion of moral authority, and our illusion of independence. This was central, by the way, to the, to the temptation that, G- that uh, Adam and Eve had in the garden. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. The essence of this temptation in Genesis is the essence of the temptations that you and I face today. In verse 5 it says, this is the devil talking here. He's trying to get Eve to do the one thing that God said not do, which was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The devil said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Up until this time, all Adam and Eve knew was good. The devil is offering them the opportunity to know evil. That's a poor opportunity. Adam and Eve were tempted to be able to determine good and evil on their own without God's input. All worldly morality is simply a pursuit of this same deception. This is, people think this is modern, it is ancient. I want to determine good and evil for myself. This is my truth, this is my good, my evil. Let's consider then how the world arrives at morality, and then I'm going to start to unpack some moral choices where far too many Christians have conformed to this world. The result of that contamination is physical, emotional, or spiritual bondage. But first I want to look at a verse in Philippians about the beauty of holiness. Philippians 4.8, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. 
Now, how do you go about determining what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, or worthy of praise? This is the field of morality, which is not just about sex. That's what people think of when you use the word morality. Sex gets all the attention because the devil has done an excellent job of making everything about sex. And this is an area of disputed morality, so it gets even more airtime. But godly morality is a reflection of our lives of holiness, and that is a reflection of Jesus Christ and of these eight things that we just read in the book of Philippians. Now, a few weeks ago, Steve Carter shared about a worldview, and he said that it's called a worldview because it comes from the world. How does the world determine its view? Because we have been surrounded by this since we were able to listen and talk. Generally speaking, the world determines what is morally right by one or more of the following issues. Personal preference, convenience, pleasure, and cultural consensus. These four form the bedrock and the basis of how the world decides what is morally right and what is morally wrong. Now, the backdrop to this approach or this uh, way to consider morality is the belief that there is no standard for truth outside of the person choosing. This idea about morality rejects the idea of absolute truth. We are here back to the temptation that the devil used on Adam and Eve. Do you want to be able to decide good and evil for yourself? The heck with what anybody else says. You can just do this yourself. You can be God. That was the temptation. Now compare this to godly morality and holiness. That is the result of looking at life the way God describes it and accepting God's assessment of that which is good and evil. It is having Jesus as your Lord and God's word as your guide. That is biblical morality. The world has always tried to make moral choices according to their own personal preference, their convenience, their pleasure, or a cultural consensus around an idea. This is not new. It is quite old, and Jesus had to deal with it and confront it in the Gospels. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. It says, and Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, I explain this section of scripture in greater detail in the series on marriage, sex, divorce, and remarriage. The setup here is that divorce was certainly lawful because it's in God's law. It's in the Old Testament. But God had very specific and very limited reasons for allowing divorce. Basically, they boiled down to abuse, neglect, hard-heartedness, or adultery. But people often found that they would like divorce. They found divorce a personal preference. It was preferable, and it was convenient. So a clever group of rabbis came up with what they considered to be a perfect solution. They twisted a verse from Deuteronomy to suit what the people wanted. And this happens all the time to this day. It's from Deuteronomy 24.1. We'll take a look at that. It said, if a man marries a woman 
who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Now, for centuries, everybody knew that this verse was talking about adultery. But people decided that staying married was no longer convenient or preferable. So instead of taking it at its face value that everyone knew, they focused on the word displeasing. And they came up with this whole theology that said, if your wife displeases you, you can divorce her. Maybe she burned the roast. That displeases me. I can divorce her. Maybe she didn't get the kids to stop crying tonight. That displeases me. I can divorce her. And this was how they formed this new morality around marriage and divorce. Jesus was having none of it. Jesus knew exactly what this verse was about, as had everyone else for centuries, and he confronts it. Look at verse 4 of Matthew chapter 19. Jesus refused to accept the twisting of morality to accommodate human preference and convenience. It says in verse 4, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I love that verse. I love that verse. When I read that verse, I don't think about what it says regarding divorce. I think about what it says about marriage. That when you get married, God's, when you form a covenant before God in marriage, God steps in and he does something. It says he joins you. That's why living together is a counterfeit of marriage. When you live together without being married, without uh, the covenant of marriage, you can never enjoy the blessings of marriage. You might enjoy the blessings and the pleasure of sex, but you're not going to understand the full impact of what God designed marriage to be and how great he decided it to be. Okay, that was a side note. Verse 7, they said to him, speaking to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Then Jesus looks at them and said, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He never command Moses didn't command people to divorce their wives, but he allowed it if there was hard-heartedness. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus knew the trap they were trying to set for him, and he knew what this particular verse in Deuteronomy was really talking about, which was adultery and divorce. It wasn't talking about the other issues of divorce. It was talking about adultery, and it was a, it was a very well-known rabbinical argument, and Jesus Christ was not going to be taken in by it. He brings it back to godly morality and to the word. And that was not such a popular position. As a matter of fact, this position was so unpopular, even his disciples were upset by what Jesus said. Look at verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with a wife, well, it's better not to marry. His disciples did, didn't even, they said, Oh my gosh, you mean I just can't divorce her if I need to, if I want to? Notice that it switches from the Pharisees who were accusing him to the disciples who were scratching their head about godly morality. Well, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of modern worldly morality 
and you can see how these choices are made, and then you can decide what choice you're going to make. Let's talk about work. God says we are to work heartily as unto the Lord, which means you are to expend yourself and extend yourself at work as if Jesus Christ himself were your boss. Now, I know Jesus isn't your boss, but that's how we are to approach work. Even if you have a rotten, crooked, unjust, mean boss, you are still to work heartily as unto the Lord. Today, many people think that it is completely acceptable to work just hard enough to keep from getting fired. And that is pretty well considered in many circles perfectly acceptable. This choice is convenient for people, and it is a personal preference for those who might be lazy. But it is not in alignment with God's morality. It's not in alignment with holiness. Let me ask you about intoxication. What about intoxication? Either by drugs or by alcohol. Makes no difference the chemical used. It's the same instance. Drunkenness is a convenient way to forget our troubles. It is pleasurable, at least in the short run, and it is considered a personal choice unless, of course, you get behind the wheel. Our society generally sees little problem with drunkenness, and it's not illegal to be drunk unless you drive. You can go home and get hammered in your house every night. Nobody's going to come and arrest you unless you get behind a wheel. Considering what is damaging to property is usually a correct definition for crimes. But I am talking to you this morning about morality, about making godly choices, and that's somewhat different than what the world talks about in terms of criminal activity. In God's world, from God's viewpoint, drunkenness is a poor moral choice. Poor moral choices are also known as sin which means to miss the mark. Please note, God is against drunkenness. He is not against drinking. Jesus made, I think, 130 gallons of water and turned it into wine. So he's obviously not against drinking. And I would love to be able to go to a tasting of that wine, by the way. The main reason that God is against drunkenness is that intoxication reduces your ability to make good choices. Think of all those clever things you did while drunk. God provides a way to conquer our troubles, not drown them out in forgetfulness. The pleasure of alcohol and drugs is fleeting at best. And you know what happens when it's over? You were the same life that you were trying to escape is still there waiting for you. It is certain, drunkenness is certainly a personal choice, but it is, is it a wise choice? Is it a moral choice? Is it a holy choice? Living a holy life is all about having Jesus as the Lord. The preferences and conveniences we think we see in the world are nothing but an illusion. The devil wants to paint living God's way as boring, restrictive, and glum. But holiness is not about what you don't do. It's about what you get to enjoy when you walk in fellowship with God. It's about a life of answered prayer and miracles. And I, for one, think a life of answered prayer and miracles is fun. Now, we're going to look at this more in our next teaching, where I'm going to cover sexual morality. Now, that's a hot-button subject, if ever you heard one. 
and it's every bit as controversial today as it was at the time of Jesus Christ. So, stay tuned. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, okay, it doesn't matter where I, okay. All right, well, God bless you in Christ's name. I'm still Bob Carden, and I'm still one of the pastors at Grace Christian Fellowship, so I want you to take your Bibles and go to First Hezekiah. <laughs> I'll see how long it takes before you figure out that's not a book in the Bible. <laughs> it's in Proverbs? <laughs> Proverbs. Okay. Um, but we, we do have Mary and Peter. It's not perfect, but. <laughs> it just takes the edge off, so it doesn't. Oops, sorry. That's okay. Don't leave the path. Someone's going to come on first. Yeah. Alrighty. So you're going to tell me when you started recording again?